0: Before we begin the talk, let's generate our motivation and think that we'll listen and think about what we hear and really take it in so that we can learn how to subdue our afflictive emotions and generate the positive ones. And let's do this not simply so that we feel better now, although that's good and we want that, but knowing that if we can subdue our afflictive emotions, we can be of much greater benefit to all other living beings. Then let's expand our intention to include working for the welfare of all beings. So, in the last few years we've been this book. Don't believe everything you think. A couple of months ago, we finally finished it. The last verse. It has uh, thirty-seven verses because it's a commentary on a Tibetan, well, Indian poem that was uh, written several centuries ago. And so now we're doing like some review of the important points. Uh-huh. So I think it'll be quite. Uh, effective. The particular section we're working on now is how to transform our mind when we encounter adversity because all of us encounter adversity, right? We all encounter, uh, well we encounter things that we don't like which may or may not be adversities but then we all encounter things that are really obstacles that you know, it just seems like everything's crashing down on us, and we're internally we're pretty revved up, and either upset or angry or both. Okay, so uh, yeah, so there's a lot of what, what they call mind training practices in the Tibetan tradition that we use to work with our mind in these situations, and they all involve looking at the situation from a different perspective. okay. And of course, since our present perspective is the one that is causing the upset, the one that's going to calm our mind down is going to be the opposite perspective. Okay. So it's going to be usually the opposite way from how we're thinking at that very moment. Now, the thing is, when we're angry and upset, um we don't think that you know there's anything incorrect in our perception or assessment of the situation so when we initially hear what these antidotes are part of our mind goes well no that's not right that can't be true because it's the opposite from how we're seeing it right then but the thing is that You know, we have to really see that our present, when we're upset, our present perception, there's something skewed in it. Yeah. There's something really, you know, cattywampers. We're not seeing the situation accurately. What is uh, one factor that is uh, continuously present when we're upset is self-reference. Yeah. Uh, because it's my problem and my difficulty and my unhappiness and this is happening to me. So just that self-reference makes a big deal out of something that to the rest of the world is not a big deal. Okay. Um, or it might be a big deal to a few people who have the same position that we do. But aside from that, no one even knows or cares about it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, if you can think of some situations when you were upset about something and, uh, and then ask yourself, you know, how many people in the world are upset about this at the moment? I remember one time, oh, I had a horrible experience in printing, publishing, trying to publish, and with some other people, and I was doing the uh, abbreviation of presentations and writing the whole book, and then the publisher sent it out to those people without my permission, and they didn't like that I abbreviated their, their presentations. Yeah, they didn't like They wanted their presentations in full form in the book with their name on it. And, um, you know, but the book was actually about one of our teachers' responses to their presentations. Anyway, all this stuff started going on between the publishers and those people and me and those people and me and the publishers, completely (coughs) upset. And uh, and then in the middle of this I had to go to India to for His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's teachings. And I remember one day hearing the teachings, walking back to my room, and when I was walking back to my room, of course the old habit of thinking about this quarrel and this big fiasco came into my mind, because it was, had been with me for several weeks and I was... You know, you know how it is, you mull it over and you ruminate on it and you know. You... So I was starting to do that again, and then the idea came in my head, you know, there's seven billion people, over seven billion people on this planet, and I'm the only one who's upset about it in this way. You know, everybody else was upset, but much less than I was. But for me, it was the big thing because it was my project, and just seeing that it was—you know—wow. There's seven over seven billion human beings, and they all have their own problems, and this is not one of them. <laughs> so why is do, does it need to be such a big problem for me? Yeah. And that really helped me calm down a lot. Yeah, really helped me calm down. Yeah. In other situations, uh, when people say things I don't like to me, they criticize me, or uh, especially when they criticize me, (laughs) yeah, then I think, well, what would happen if they said the same words to somebody else? Yeah. Like, if somebody came in and said, "Children, you're such an idiot, and you're so unreliable, and you mess up all the time, I would get really mad. But if somebody said those to one of our presidential candidates, I won't mention who, I would say, oh, you're absolutely right. And I would feel very happy. Now... Why? Why do I feel upset when the insult is towards to me? But when it goes towards somebody who I think is, a, is completely incompetent, then I think it's very good. What's the difference? Yeah? Well, the only difference is basically that, it, you know, who the insult is directed to. When it's directed towards me, it is a huge thing. When it's directed towards somebody else, well, he gets so many already, it probably fades into the background. Yeah? But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, how it's not the power of the words themselves that affect us so much. It's the fact that they're directed towards me. When they're directed towards somebody else, we don't get nearly as upset. Yeah, it's like when our car gets scratched, you know, this is like big. Somebody else's car gets dented, which is even worse. And if it's a stranger's car, you know, it's like not that big. It's like, too bad, chill out, I'm onto something, thinking something else. Yeah. So do you see how this self-referencing tends to exaggerate everything that happens to us? Everything. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's so irritating. When it's directed to us. Okay, so let me read you some of these verses and, and the things that uh, they say t- to do. <laughs> you know, when we're okay. That's one more chapter. Okay, so here's a. Uh, it's the chapter called Transforming Distressing Events. So here's one that uh, uh, the theme is about living with loss. So the verse says, Even if someone out of strong desire steals all your wealth or has it stolen, dedicate to him your body, possessions, and your virtue, past, present, and future. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So bodhisattvas are beings who have Compassion and an altruistic intention spontaneously for all other living beings—they're very close to Buddhahood. Okay, so that's how they practice. Yeah. How do we practice? So if someone, out of strong desire, steals all your wealth or has it stolen, how are you going to respond? Yeah. Maybe there's identity theft or somebody breaks in your house and steals your prized possessions. Uh, Maybe all your sentiment, you know, it could be things that are very expensive that you treasure. It could be uh, little mementos of things, you know, that you treasure. And somebody just comes in and takes them as if they were theirs. How are you going to feel? Yeah? Are you gonna say so what? <laughs> no. <laughs> you're gonna call 911 and you know, you're gonna tell them they gotta catch this guy who's the thief and you wanna prosecute because you're really upset about it. And how do how are we advised to practice here? Dedicate to the thief our body's possessions, and virtues, past, present, and future. So what that means is mentally imagine giving even our body, all of our possessions, and all of our good karma to this person who just stole our stuff. One part of our mind says, no way, I'll give him a punch in the face, but nothing more. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to give my stuff to him. And yet, you know, look at the mind that's saying, no, this is mine, he violated my territory. That mind is so miserable, and yet we're holding on to it out of a sense of justice. Yeah, so justice is making us pretty miserable. And in the meantime, whether we get this stuff back or not is, who knows. Whereas if we just mentally give it to the person who took it, yeah, then our mind is much more relaxed. Okay. So depending on the situation, you may still try and get your things back. Or you may just figure, you know, this person must need it. And if he had had the manners to come and ask me, I would have given it to him. But, you know, he lacked those manners. He just took it by himself. And so he must have needed it. I give it to him. And if we really sincerely give it, then our mind is peaceful. That's not saying that... We think it's okay for other people to rob people of their possessions. We're not saying that. It's clearly a misdeed on that person's part. And they're clearly creating negative karmic imprints on their mind stream. But we're just saying, I'm not going to you know, foster my own mental upset by holding on to this. One time I was was meditating in India. I had a little cabin that was up the hill and nobody else was around there. And I went out for a walk at lunch and I came back and somebody had stolen my alarm clock and a pen. Yeah. And I, you know, my first (laughs) response They came in here and stole my alarm clock and my pen. Who do they think they are? You know, I was so mad. And, you know, I didn't have much money at that time. And so an alarm clock, you know, was like really precious to me. <laughs> and, you know, I had to really sit with that and just say, you know, well, clearly this person must have needed it very badly, you know, if they broke into the cabin. I didn't even know if the cabin was locked. I may have left it unlocked. But, you know, if they went in and took somebody else's thing, they must have really needed it, you know, so better give it. So it took me a while, you know, to actually chill out about this and mentally uh, give the, the stuff. But it it did help calm me down, and now, looking back on it years later, you know, I mean, how many years has it been since I've thought about that alarm clock? (laughs) And my life went on very well without that alarm clock, (laughs) yeah. And anyway, it probably would have been broken long ago even if I still had it. So I was already in the process of separating from it, and then it vanished. Okay, Here's another verse. This one's pretty dramatic. I don't think it's going to happen to us. Hopefully not. Even if someone tries to cut off your head when you haven't done the slightest thing wrong, out of compassion, take all her misdeeds upon yourself. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. Okay, so even if somebody tries to cut off your head when you haven't done the slightest thing wrong, I mean, that's a pretty extreme situation, isn't it? You know, it's like you've been captured by ISIS in a prison there and, you know, they're going to... Cut off your head and make a video out of it. You know. So that that's a pretty drastic situation. But even something minor, yeah, somebody does something to us even though we haven't done the slightest thing wrong. Yeah. Have you had that happen to you in your life? You get blamed for something that you didn't do? Yeah? Or you face negative repercussions for something that you didn't do. Whenever my brother and I got into a fight, it was always his fault. And I got blamed because I was the oldest. Yeah. Can you imagine that? And how many other times in your work, in your family, anywhere, have you been blamed for something that you didn't do? You know? And it can be the smallest thing. Smallest, tiniest thing. Yeah? Somebody says, oh, you forgot to wipe the table down after lunch. I mean I forgot to wipe the table down after lunch. I don't forget things like this. I wipe the table down. The other person says, Well you didn't do a very good job of it because there are all sorts of crumbs in front of my place. And we say, Well you dropped the crumbs there, so you clean it up. Yeah. And then, you know, we start a big hullabaloo, don't we? Yeah. As if that person wanted to cut off our head. That's how serious it is. know. Yeah. Again, because of our self-referencing mind. Yeah, the self-centered mind. So what's the antidote? Out of compassion, take all her misdeeds upon yourself. You mean all the negative karma this person has created... All their bad deeds, I have to want to experience the result of them myself. It's bad enough that they put the crumbs there and I'm getting blamed for not wiping them up. And this verse is saying, take on all their misdeeds and the results of all their misdeeds. This has got to be crazy. but you know again we see that as long as we're focused on ourself everything becomes enormous yeah when we can switch it and with compassion think of the misery that other people are undergoing at this moment then it puts our pain into a completely different perspective doesn't it yeah uh, whatever we're so you know upset about seems not so upsetting now you're gonna say well you just use the you know some silly example yeah of somebody blaming me for not watch, washing the table but we get upset about that. Even, I mean, anything, even if it's something serious, some super serious thing, you know, that we actually did forget to do, or didn't forget to do, it doesn't really matter. Because in both cases, we usually get upset and angry. Because even if I did it, people aren't supposed to notice it. Or they're supposed to point out my mistake in a very sweet way, yeah. but they have no manners and they just blame me. Okay. So doesn't you know? In many ways, it doesn't matter whether it's a big thing or a small thing, because the amount of emotional reaction in us often is the same, simply because it's related to us. And so here, you know, there's one thing that we, that we practice a lot in Buddhist mind training is, uh, is love and compassion. Love being the wish for somebody to have happiness and its causes. Some compassion, the wish for them to be free of suffering and its causes. So towards this person who is, you know, they haven't really threatened to cut my head off they're just pointing out something you know can i you know look at it in a more reasonable way uh, and okay this person is bothered this person is disturbed they're in pain that's why they're pointing out my mistake or that's why they're accusing me of a mistake can i have some compassion for their mental state yeah, can I think about how they must be feeling? And if I can think of how they must be feeling and cultivate some compassion, not wanting them to feel more harm, then, you know, that overrides our own anger. So I think especially since Election Day is rapidly approaching, in two days, in three days, who knows how we're going to feel? Some people will feel elated. Some people will feel angry. Some people will feel relieved. Yeah, But uh, no matter how we feel, if we could generate a sense of, wishing others to be happy and to have peaceful kind minds whoever they are even if we have different political views wouldn't that be a way of healing after everything that's happened in this election cycle yeah now can you think of you know whichever party you're favoring can you think of having compassion for the other party or for the other candidate? Yeah? Or is your mind so evolved in they're just horrible? You know, the worst thing that can happen to the country. Yeah. We may think that, we may feel that, but can we still wish that person well? Yeah? Cause think, if that person were happy, then maybe what they do wouldn't be so bad for the country. Maybe it's because they're so unhappy that they're doing or saying whatever the thing is that we find so despicable. Yeah. Can we have some compassion for them? Can we have compassion for their supporters? Because we all share this country, and somehow we're going to have to get along. And getting along is going to benefit all of us a lot more than hating each other and retaliating. Don't you think? Yeah? I read in the news this morning that the Kurdish troops now are You know, uh, in addition to the Iraqi troops, that they're all you know going to recapture. I think the Iraqis are recapturing Mosul, and the and the Kurds want to uh, recapture uh, Raqqa. And I thought, wow, here's all these people in armies, all revved up, all their adrenaline pumping. You know out to kill others who they think are enemies. And in the process of doing that, many of them are going to get killed. Which means they will suffer, their friends and families will suffer, the society suffers, and for what purpose? You know? It's when you look at it, we human beings, we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time. Yeah? We think fighting with weapons is going to solve our problem. When learning to compromise and cooperate is going to actually bring much more peace and happiness to everybody. Yeah? I remember as a kid, Because I grew up during the Vietnam era going, what are we doing? I don't get it. And I still don't get it. So, you know, just to, to look at, you know, the level of anger and hatred we can generate towards other living beings, and to ask ourselves if it really does any good for anybody. And I think of all those young men who are going to be killed today, even though they're going into battle, you know, thinking, what I'm doing is so wonderful. And it doesn't really matter which side they're on, you know. Death is death. Suffering is suffering. Anyway, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of way I look at it, you know. And if we can instead, you know, release our anger and generate some thought of benevolence towards others, well, all of us would be better off. So whether that's international, whether it's within our own country, whether it's within our family. Yeah. So if someone is very angry, very full of hatred, for whatever reason. How do you bring up the idea of compassion? Well, you mean bring up the compassion in ourselves. No. How do you bring up the idea of compassion towards whatever they are hatred, hating or angry with? How do you, or maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, how do we bring up the idea of compassion to the other person? Not in ourselves. How do you how do you introduce the idea that maybe they could be
1: compassionate? Oh, how do we
0: make them compassionate? Right. <laughs> First we make ourselves compassionate. Okay. Yeah? Then we drop our agenda. Okay. Then we listen. To the other person, and try and refl- you know reflect what they're saying in terms of rephrasing it, so that they know that we've understood what their emotions are, and they know that we've understood what their needs are. And often, for other people, just feeling understood is half of the thing of calming them down. Sometimes it's all of the the thing of calming them down. And then once we learn, you know, what their feelings are, what their needs are, then, you know, you have to go through this until they really feel heard a lot. And then, uh, you know, brainstorming, well, what kind of solutions? Can we find that would be workable to you and also workable to the other people in the situation? Yeah, and it takes a lot of time and it takes a whole lot of patience to work with people like this. Yeah, but it's doable, and it sure beats beating our, each other up, doesn't it? Okay, Okay. here's another one that's about facing blame. Even if someone broadcasts all kinds of unpleasant remarks about you throughout the 3,000 worlds, 3,000 worlds means the entire universe, Okay. in return, with a loving mind, speak of his good qualities. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. Somebody trashed me to everybody else and humiliated me in the public eye, made me look bad to the people that I respect, who I want to respect me and like me, ruined my reputation in front of the world. And this idiot, I'm supposed to, with loving mind, speak of his good qualities? too much. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, too much. So, okay, this has to do with attachment to reputation. Yeah, when we're really attached to what other people think about us. And we can get pretty attached to our reputation. You know, it seems like it's the most important thing you know what other people think of me is so important okay for a moment remember when you were a teenager okay and remember what was important to you then what how you wanted people to look at you when you were a teenager okay And do you remember how upset you used to get when people like talk bad about you behind your back and ruined your reputation to all your friends? Remember how, how upset you used to get? When you think back on that now, how do you feel? The way you wanted people to look at you when you were a teenager, do you want them to look at you that same way now? Do you? How did you want people to see you when you were a teenager? Huh? Yeah. Don't i you agree. You Like on? one of the cool ones, you know. It yeah. The yeah, I want to be seen as one of the cool ones who's in the group. Yeah. Who looks like everybody else, but in my own distinct way? <laughs> okay, so I'm an individual in, in my conforming way. Okay, now the way that that you want people to see you, the, the traits that you had to have in order to be one of the cool people who were in the in crowd. Do you want to have those same traits now? Are those traits at all important to you now? They're not, are they? And when we look back on them, we can laugh. It's like, you know, wow, I got so twisted up about what people thought about me. In my case, you know, one of the big things was in, in those days, you were supposed to have long, straight, blonde hair. I had short, curly, brown hair. Okay? The travesties, the pain of a teenage girl who didn't look like the cheerleaders looked like even though I didn't know if I really wanted to be a cheerleader. you know, I was supposed to want to look like them anyway, or supposed to want to be like them. Even though I don't think I really wanted to go out with the football guys because they all seemed like a bunch of... Anyway, <laughs> they were the in people, and I was supposed to. Them. And I look at it now, and it's like, it's It's totally, it's so amusing. I have to laugh at, you know, how much suffering I went through over something so stupid. Because I was so attached to my reputation. You know, because when you're a teenager, I mean, that's the meaning of your life, isn't it? What other people think about you. But your friends forget your parents. You don't care what your parents think about you. You know, you care what your friends think about you. (laughs) Yeah. So you know. So we look back on that, and it's like we can laugh and chuckle at it now. And if we take that and then think about now how attached we are to our reputation, and that maybe in some years in the future now when we look back on what we're attached to now maybe we can laugh and chuckle in the same way as we laugh and chuckle about what we how we wanted to appear to others when we were a teenager yeah anybody else have some teenage stories they want to Terrible tar baby, you look like you're thinking about. But. Same as her. Let's be. I want to be cool, you know. I never really got trashed though, but I still had all that carried all of the um, the burden of wanting to look a certain way. I did. But you, hair you, hair. you have long hair. 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 <laughs> I noticed it when you came. My hair was heavy though. Yeah, but it looks so cool. Uh, <laughs> when so you nice. moved here, I was going. Wow, that's the kind of hair I wanted to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when I was a kid, it wasn't good enough. I remember I ironed it once it went straight. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, so it's really funny when we think about that now, and all the dramas we went through as a teenager. Do you remember that? You know, do they when you're first starting to date? Do they like me? Do they not like me? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, and like we look at it now, and it's just seems so totally silly unless you're still really stuck in it, in which case (laughs) I offer you a lot of compassion. (laughs) Okay? So to just, you know, when you look at that in that way, we begin to see that actually reputation is not so important. It's really not so important what other people think of us, because in a little bit of time we'll want them to look at us and think about us in a totally different way. Yeah? And anyway, reputation is just other people's thoughts. It's nothing more than their thoughts. So why do we get so hung up about other people's thoughts, which aren't even who we are? Okay. So you know, in that case, if we see things in that way, then what was the advice to point out their good qualities? Here it was. Uh... Yeah. Okay. Lost my place in the book. Yeah, it was pointing out their good. Yeah. In return with a loving mind, loving mind towards that person. Speak of his good qualities. This is the practice of Bodhisattvas. Okay. Here's another one, working with criticism. Though someone may deride and speak bad words of about you in a public gathering, looking on her as a spiritual teacher, bow to her with respect, so this is similar to the other one, except here they're they're talking to a public gathering it's not to the whole universe, yeah, it's not through three thousand worlds, and uh, you know in the previous one they were broadcasting all kinds of unpleasant remarks here they're deriding and speaking bad words about us. Kind of the same thing. You know, maybe slightly different varieties. So here, look at, on her as a spiritual teacher and bow to her with respect. Huh? Yeah. Well, even if our spiritual teachers said those words to us in a public gathering, we wouldn't bow to them with respect. <laughs> We criticize our spiritual teacher. Who are they deriding me in front of everybody else? Okay. Well, actually, if that happens in a spiritual context, a um, spiritual situation, it means that your teacher is actually trusting you to be able to handle it. So it's actually a way of praising because they trust you to be able to handle it. Yeah. I Once when I saw this in action once um, it was in 1986 and I was at a Buddhist conference in Taiwan and they uh, was hosted by a big Buddhist organization and uh, they had a conference and then afterwards they took us on you know, a temple tour and a pilgrimage and everything. And then at the very last session they were uh, the master was, you know, thanking the audience for coming, thanking all of us, and then they he had his the foremost disciples who were uh, in charge of organizing both the conference and the tour, up in front of the room. And so there was one nun and he introduced her and she organized this and did this and this and this and it was so good. Everybody applauded for her. This monk then did this and this and this and it was so excellent. Everybody applauded for him. And then he got to like the fourth monk, uh, the fourth monastic and he said, and this monk was so lazy. You know, he was in charge of da 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 da, but he didn't do a very good job. You know, and the whole audience is quiet, kind of embarrassed for this guy. You know. But I realized at that moment that he must have been a very close heart in terms of heartfelt disciple for the Master to be able to say that to him in front of a group of people, because the Master knew he could handle it and was giving him a situation to practice in. Yeah. It didn't mean that he was going to handle it in the next three seconds, but he knew that you know, that, that disciple could call up within himself the fortitude to deal with the situation eventually. Okay? So in that way when we look at, situ- at situations where we're criticized or derided in front of a group, you know, and we think, okay, this is a time for me really to practice you know, what I have been training my mind in in my meditation sessions letting go of attachment to praise, letting go of attachment to reputation. Yeah? And this person is like my spiritual mentor, giving me an opportunity to really do this in real time. So, you know, can't I put my palms together and say thank you? Mm. You're saying no. Okay, we'll get you some tissue. (laughs) But it's really the way, you know, to to try and edge our mind towards seeing things in that way. Yeah, as much with all these verses, you know, they're difficult because our mind is so much sunk into self-centeredness. But as much as we can nudge our mind to go in that direction, then the better it is. And we may have to nudge our mind there and then it kind of goes back again. And we have to nudge it there again and it goes back. You know, so this is something we have to practice. That's why they call it practicing the Dharma. Okay? But if we practice it, then it forms a new way, a new habitual way of looking at circumstances, which is very much uh, to our advantage in the sense that our minds will be peaceful. And it's really no sweat off our back. But we feel like, you know, praising this person, oh, as if, you know, we'd rather have our, all our teeth filled. Pulled without anesthetic. And praise that person. <laughs> you know, it seems like saying anything positive about them is just—it's so difficult. You know? But you know, if we try, then slowly our attitude changes and our our actions change. Okay. So we have a few minutes for questions and comments. Yeah. Um, It just strikes me again that um, it's not about the willpower. Um, Like when I hear this and I I think about the reaction, when you have like an attached reaction and how that feels. and And then I think of reacting in the other way. It's like I become more convinced that that's the way to peace. It's like having an underlying Worldview mm. gets you there. Yes. It's not about just gritting your teeth and saying, sorry, well, right. you know, it's something more." Yeah. Definitely, it's not about about gritting your teeth and saying, "I'm gonna get through this. I'm gonna have love for that jerk." <laughs> you know, it's not that. It's you hit it right. The head now, the nail on the head, is it's an underlying world view, and it's an internal change in perspective that we have to habituate ourselves with. You know? Because sitting there and gritting our teeth, who's going to be happy doing that? The Yeah, the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really it's it's you know cultivating some deep change, but when we can do that, it's so helpful. But practice and practice and practice. The questions comments? Just hearing you speak about the um, you know our attachment to reputation, it reminds me, of course, currently how. How much this quality, this approval rating, is touted as like the sum of a person at any You know, so we trust a person because their approval ratings are higher at this point, or their approval ratings go up. And whoever, whatever that is in the media, I don't even know what they really are. But when I hear, oh, so and so's approval rating is down thirty-seven points, then <laughs> you know, then then it sounds so real and solid like that's who the person is. Yeah. And that's kind of framework with it. So, of course, we're measuring our reputations according to approval ratings these days. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, what are approval ratings no, anyway? No. Yeah. You know, they call a few people, you know, who are busy doing things and ask them questions and they have to answer off the top of their head. And then it gets blown up, to, be, like you said, to be this is who this person is. And, of course, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. Yeah. And then we take it so seriously, as if, you know, you know, this week this person's really awful, but next week they suddenly got better. And then the week after that, they degenerated again. <laughs> and the week after that, whoa, they're up again. As if, you know, some person is changing so much. Or if we look at it as that's the approval rating, what other people think is good. So if we want to be one of the elements of being in the in crowd and being liked, is that you agree with it, what everybody else thinks. So if the approval ratings say that, then you better say think that too, so that you know you're thinking the way the group thinks, and then you can fit in. Yeah. Oh, per second. Okay. Well, I'm still fascinated with the self-referencing. Um, in that for someone who spent so much time thinking about themselves, there's absolutely nothing in there that we take care of that would encourage a true self understanding. So we're being so self-referenced. We're so outwardly referenced, mm-hmm. even though we're self-referenced. So yeah. there's nothing the self-referencing is standing on, like except what every the whole world thinks about us. Yeah. It's a fascinating <laughs> dichotomy. Yeah. Yes. This is quite interesting, isn't it, what she's pointing out? That we're very self-referenced, so we think what everybody else thinks about me is so important. But what is that self-referencing all about it's what others think about me <laughs> so we're focusing trying to figure out our identity based on what other people are thinking about us so we're in that respect we're so out of touch with ourselves even though the whole thing that we're involved in is very self-referenced so it's self-referenced in a very dysfunctional way and out of touch with what we really feel and what we really think and who we really are because we're listening to what everybody else is saying. Yeah, it's kind of contradictory, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely crazy making. Exactly. That's where the, the smoke and you know the smoke and mirrors and the bells and whistles of the dog and pony show start because we, we've gotta figure out something in here to make that out there say, You're doing great, you're doing great, we love you, you know? And that's what I do. Anna. It was so Anna. Yeah, right, the dog and pony show. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? I'm gonna try and be what I think you think. I should be. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl? I was uh, a little bit connected to that too. I was just struck and thought about how many people kill themselves every oh. year and it has to do with how they feel like they're not being perceived how they want to be perceived and mm-hmm. just people kill themselves over this. Yeah, people kill themselves. Kill others. And they kill others about reputation and... How they think they're being perceived. Yeah. Sad, isn't it? I was just thinking that oftentimes the things that we get so angrier about is because somebody has said something that I know. Like when somebody tells you something you already know? Right, like you forgot to wipe down the table. (laughs) I know I did. Leave me alone. (laughs) But we don't feel like we can say that so we get defensive. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Or even in some other kind of discussion somebody explains to us Something that we already know, you know? Ooh. Like, you think I'm a dummy and I don't know that already? (laughs) The thing I wanted to say was that that I don't do Facebook, but to me, if I had a Facebook account, and especially if I was a teenager, and then that would be my free world system. That is my universe. Yeah. And then I, I think you can't take off people's replies, if they say something negative about you, it goes out to everybody, I think. I don't know. But it seems like it would be such a great response to something like that. Because I know that when I see someone who's criticized and they retaliate, versus when I see someone who's criticized and they come back with something like a loving heart that praises the other person, then you don't even, you know, whatever the criticism they received, it kind of evaporates. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? As a third party, you know, if you see A criticize B, yeah, if B if B comes back and responds to A with something kind, then we don't think badly about B. But if B responds to A with more attack, then was probably true. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I sure wish our presidential candidates thought like that. So that you know but that's our, our problem. We come back with the tax and then um, yeah I was thinking about Jeffrey's point about you know um, the remarks that people made about uh, some of the things that's written. And he didn't think it was important to respond, and then his other colleagues then thought that he couldn't respond. Oh, okay. How do you see that in this? Okay, so uh, yeah, one of our friends who is a uh, scholar, um, you know, you know how it is with scholarly academic things. than other people write stuff. They they criticized what he said, and he's very brilliant, and he knew their criticism was, you know. Out to lunch it was because they didn't understand so he didn't respond to their criticism just thinking that it wasn't important but then other people thought that he didn't know the answers and so that's why he didn't respond yeah so in that kind of situation where you know he's not talk, he's talking about ideas it's not per- trading personal insults Yeah, they're talking about ideas. So if somebody has a misunderstanding, then it's good to explain their misunderstanding, even if you think it's something trivial that they should already know, to have a kind heart and want to help them so that they can have the correct understanding. Well, he said that he then had to respond in like even a harsher way than probably Warren. And he was talking about like in Tsongkhapa's case, when there were all these things that yeah. coming in and how he was responding. But, but Tsongkhapa didn't, uh, you know, and Jeffrey, also, you don't respond with personal attacks against the other person. You respond strongly, but you respond to the ideas and correct the wrong ideas. Yeah, which is very different than criticizing the person. Yeah. Sometimes... They, you know, in the philosophical treatises, at least in ancient uh, times, they used to criticize each other. And I remember reading once and, you know, kind of one scholar is like castigating the other one. And we asked our teacher about it, like, hey, aren't these people Buddhists? Shouldn't they be talking nicely to each other? And he explained. That in that particular case, I mean, they were both kind of very uh, wise people. That the uh, that one was, you know, saying these words to the other one to shake him up to get him to listen. Yeah, but it wasn't that he was trying to inflict pain and suffering on the other person through his words. Janet. Oh, yeah. It was uh, somewhere in this direction. <laughs> just that whole paradox was so interesting, and to think about when you bring your self-awareness back on the inside about who you feel that you really are, rather than looking outside, only then do you shift your focus back outward to other people and see the other people for who they are and have compassion for them. And so it's just the other side of the paradox, which is yeah. so crazy. Yeah, yeah. So when you bring this here, the focus back inward, to who you are, and you can evaluate yourself well, and you have self-acceptance, then you can actually look at other people in an in an accurate and kind way. Yeah. That's a real paradox. Yeah, it really is a paradox, isn't it? But it's different ways of looking at ourselves and different ways of looking at others. It somehow makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, so we're gonna stop now and dedicate to this. May we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind, not yet born, arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forever.